Father God, we ask that we might just sit at the feet of your word this morning and hear some of its goodness, to learn from it, to let it shape us, to let us let it mold us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love most about the Old Testament is the many layers within it. In one sense, it's almost like a good onion. Uh, at the surface level of this book, we have God the Creator. We have Habakkuk the praying prophet. We have the ancient kingdom of Judah. And we have the upstart return of an old empire. And those are, in one kind of a cursory glance at this book, those are the fundamental main characters of the book. And yet, the more you get into this book, the more that you get into, especially this chapter, one of, and this is not an exaggeration, one of the most important and influential chapters in all of Scripture. And, and I love how God just kind of tucks it into this little minor prophet, we call him, Habakkuk. But one of the most important chapters of all the scripture, we start to unpack and realize that this Babylon, this Neo-Babylon, aspects of Babylon are within us. When we are puffed up, when we are self-righteous, when we refuse to humble ourselves, but also even aspects of Judah, this kingdom uh, that was supposed to be a covenant community following God, and yet Habakkuk's whole complaint really begins with the law seems ineffectual in order to change them. There are aspects of Judah within us as well. And right here at the start, I want to point out something that maybe you failed to notice up until this point in the book of Habakkuk. Okay, so God is going to allow the worst of Babylon to destroy the very center of his covenant community, the people of Judah. He's going to allow Babylon to destroy Judah. He's going to allow wicked rulers to take over in order to reform his covenant community. And let me mention this, as we all know what awaits us on Tuesday. Maybe I'll pick on the Pennsylvania senatorial candidates. We have two candidates. We have bad and we have worse. <laughs> bad and worse. And then, you know, third parties that usually people don't vote for, and so they stay third parties. So bad and worse are our options. And if the pattern of Habakkuk, if God is a consistent God of routine and patterns, is to be understood, God will either let bad or worse become our state senator, our federal representative in the Senate, in part as a judgment to reform the church. We don't think of it that way. We tend to think, oh, if worse comes and gets elected, oh, that's really going to be terrible for us. We don't think about, hey, God uses wicked rulers in order first and foremost, as Habakkuk tells us, to reform the church within. 
You sick of bad rulers in America? Start by looking at the church. The church is sick. Fix the problem of the church. Fix the mission of the church. Fix the focus on the word of God. And maybe we'll stop seeing bad and worse political candidates. We worship a holy God who so desires us in his image to follow him in living holy lives that he will allow evil to flourish for seasons. And so Habakkuk is a detailed warning about the Babylonian heart within all of us. And it begins here in verse 5 with warning about drunkenness. And yet, if you think this is just about drinking alcohol, we have a lot of people in this church, and honestly, a wonderful thing, who have made a commitment to themselves to never drink alcohol. But don't sit there and think, oh, I don't drink alcohol, this doesn't apply to me. That's not the point here. But it, but a drunk helps illustrate what God is trying to get at. Because I guess most of us have at least been around a drunk or unfortunately experienced the foolishness of allowing ourselves to be drunk. And what is truly drunkenness? It's a blend of several things, but in the heart of drunkenness is in one sense an unpredictability. I remember, and I bring this up often, ministering to the homeless in Las Vegas. And homeless people can only have enough money to invest in their favorite pet sin. And so in Las Vegas, that meant they either fully dedicated themselves and every penny they got to, to gambling, to drugs, or to alcohol. The gamblers were the most friendly. You love the gamblers. They were the easiest homeless to deal with. The drug addicts, they just didn't really want anything to do with you. And the drunks were scary. The times where if people threatened to kill me, and sometimes with weapons, sometimes trying to stab me, were the drunks. The drunks were erratic. They were ungrounded. They were unmoored. That is the idea here. The individual who is unmoored, who has no firm footing. And God says of this group in verse 6, I take up my taunts against such people. God will have this word that's translated woe five times in this passage. And it's a really hard word to translate. Actually, there's an element of sarcasm in it, which I'm happy to hear because I can be a sarcastic individual, unfortunately, mostly in a sinful way. But God sometimes uses sarcasm. And this is one of those moments when you see the woe here. I'm going to pick on young children at this time. So that kind of illustrates what woe means. Aha, Billy! I'm so glad you found those scissors and gave yourself a haircut. It looks so great. Aha, little Sally! Oh, I never knew you could paint on walls with such a material. They look fantastic. That's kind of the idea of woes. Look how smart it is to touch a burning flame, a hot pot. That's wrapped up in the Hebrew idea of woe. Each of these five woes will be illuminating. What the puffed up ones that we talked about last week, those that 
the Lord regards as fools what they think is good. And God mocks them for it. And the first fool in our passage is a fool who is trying to acquire things that on their own they don't have. And people love to quickly run to the thieves and the, and the extortioners and these sorts of individuals on this. And there is an application there. There's also another one. Buying groceries. So expensive little It's inflation. We've been stealing from future generations in order to have certain things in our generation. Certain generations that cannot get both, certain generations that might not even be alive, we're stealing from them in order that we in our own present day might have. And it's interesting, on this first woe, God basically says if you practice this, kind of policy, and he is speaking about a nation, but he's also talking individually. If you practice this policy, all of a sudden violence will spring up. Even in your cities, violence will spring up. How's crime going in cities? I've heard that like half the major cities in the U.S. don't even want to track their crime rates in order to try to pretend, or or you knew what Philadelphia did. They started saying that crime committed against six individuals at one time is no longer looked at six individual crimes, but in their data counting, they now call that one crime. And still crime is through the roof, even as they try to fudge the numbers. God's saying, you steal, you acquire that which is not yours. There will be a byproduct in my design. There will be a decay, a fall, a breakdown in such a system. That's the first one. Now, the wall of verses 6 through 8 tells us that basically when individuals care so much about the created things, they will have no stops to the point in which they will take from others. In verse 9, we find the second woe. And the second woe, in one sense, are those who have the power to receive evil gain. And notice the motive behind this woe. This woe desires to gain for his house, no matter the cost, um, at what essentially to put them on a firm footing. A great illustration of this woe are political dynasties. You know, I'm sure people are buying hundred Biden's paintings for a million dollars with no desire to have access to the, uh, the Biden's. But uh, to pick on the Biden's would be also to pick on the Trump family, to pick on the Obama family that's worth a half a billion now, would be to pick on the Bush family, would be to pick on the Clinton family, and so on and so on. Political dynasties that do not care what they do, they will just they want what they want, no matter the cost. And say, oh, well, that's great. It's in Washington, D.C. We don't have to worry about this problem. Really? Really? As a pastor, 
have had someone come up to me before and say, we're going to stop attending as frequently because I really want to invest in my child so that they can become a professional athlete. I kid you not. In a year and a half, they were entirely gone from the church. You're stealing from God. In order to establish your household, which for their household was to kick a ball or to hit a ball or, or to whatever with a ball really was. Brilliant! God will reward that. Of course he won't reward that. When we don't honor the Sabbath, we, we don't honor the Lord's Day, that is a form of stealing. And God says in this second woe, I will not bless houses that steal. And steal from me. That the prophet that try to benefit in unholy ways. That's the second woe. That's the second individual. And I love the imagery here in verse 11. Basically, this house is brought down. This house that has been tried to be built up from the stone and the, and the supporting beams. And I just pictured Samson. Pictured Samson in the book of Judges. When he's in the, the temple of worshiping Dagon and the Philistines are just mocking Samson. Hey, we have our victory. We've established our house in this land. And God gives Samson the power to rip it all down in a great judgment. God will destroy those building their house, not following his building codes. You know, very soon here, I want the congregation, and I, and I don't have permission to consist yet to have this vote, to vote on upgrading that upper pavilion so it's a four-season building so we can invest in future generations here, use it as a teaching space, especially for the youth. And some of that worry, some of the concern as you're preparing to, to bring that before the congregation is worried about the building codes. You, uh, what happens to the building codes and touching that building? A far greater problem we as the church are prone to forget, prone to miss, is the fact that we need to look at our families and go, are we abiding by God's building codes? Because if we're not abiding by God's building codes, this, this family is going to collapse, this house is going to collapse. We need to abide by God's codes. This next woe, I think of the third woe, is for individuals and societies who build a town with blood, who founds a city on iniquity. And that's interesting. We could be tempted to think, oh, this one doesn't apply to the average person. And yet, who is the first person who builds a town in the aftermath of blood in Scripture? Say it happens in Genesis 4. Was it not Cain in Genesis 4 that after he kills his brother, goes and builds a town? It's a town that invented even sexual perversion. Polygamy comes from Cain's town. We worship a God in whom says, if you hate someone in your heart, you murder them. And so... One application could be a racist society. A society built on hating neighbor. But there's another one. This will be an idol for a lot of you. 
that believes that the most wonderful thing about America is that we can embrace this culture of secular humanism, of pretending and fooling ourselves, that it's better never to consider God in, in the voting booth. We separate that, of course. That's to be separate. Okay. Secular humanism is building societies on the foolishness, on hate for God and His Word. And if you go into a voter booth and you give yourself a false comfort because your favorite politician, whether it be bad or worse, tells you, oh, in there it doesn't matter what God thinks. You're, you're a fool. That's his woe to you. That's his woe to you who would try to build a city, build a society without considering my wisdom. Woe to you. He wants a society filled, as we can see in verse 4, filled like the oceans are filled with water, with the knowledge of the Lord. That's what God's building for. He's building for a world filled with his knowledge, like the oceans are filled with water. So we better consider, especially verse 14. Verse 14 is so beautiful. We better consider it when we hate neighbor. We better consider it as we fight for the establishment of a better society, a better town in which we are to live in. And that knowing there, that knowledge that he's talking about in verse 14, that's an intimate knowledge. You know, 21 years ago, that woman right there was Sarah Morella's roommate. That's all she was. She was Sarah Varela's roommate. And I only knew her because Sarah Varela was the head of the International Club. And for some foolish reason, the International Club, who most of these people had been playing soccer their entire life, decided to make me their soccer coach. And I was coached for two years. We were like the Phillies. There were about 30 teams. We finished in second place both years. But... I was the head coach of the, the soccer team of the International Club, but also Sarah Barella was a fellow San Diego. And so I didn't know her. I only knew her as Sarah Barella's roommate. Four years later, I would say, Vows to her. And I would know her as my wife. And now, more than 20 years after that fact, I know her in ways that even that one who said vows 16 years ago does not, did not know. That's the kind of intimacy God desires for this world to have for him. And God is at work establishing in this world. And, and why I belabor this point is the following reason. We get so addicted to complaining and seeing how bad things are going because because candidate bad and worse are both on the ballot, we get so addicted to complaining that we forget that we're actually in the Great Commission, supposed to be at people at work to make sure that the whole earth knows the love of Jesus Christ. That God is working towards that goal in history, and He has called us, He has commanded us, in His final commandment, we call. 
called the Great Commission to be a part of that work. And so when we do see problems in society, that isn't the opportunity to go, oh, the end might be nigh, but actually what, to look at our lives and go, how, how are we invested? How are we invested in making sure the knowledge of God, of the goodness of Christ, covers the earth? That's for us in this passage. <sighs> Let me catch up to my notes. Verse 15. We have our fourth woeful individual. The fool, who as the translators put it, makes his neighbors drink. This is the second time where it seems it's just about alcohol. It's not just about alcohol. We actually discover something in this woe. We discover that the godless have their own desire, and it is for their neighbor. To embrace wickedness like they have. In one sense, the godless have their own great commission. And stop fooling yourself. It isn't for public neutrality. It isn't for neutrality in the public square. Evil loves to dim the lights of society. So that more evil might reign. And dark, greater darkness might prevail. And more people love to embrace that darkness. And so it's more than just drunkenness, though. I have to sadly admit, I'm sure some of us unfortunately can admit, sometimes drunkenness helps. Sadly, in my high school and early college days, liquid stupidity at times really helped. And it's not to be called liquid courage, it's called liquid stupidity. And it aided in such sinful pursuits. Evil desires company and evil desires to see society to continue to rot. Evil is not neutral. And to such people, verse 16 is utterly horrifying. It's a horrifying warning. Not that they'll hear it. But please, if you do not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, please hear verse 16. Empower the Spirit. The Lord has a cup of wrath for such individuals that delight evil, promote evil, sanction, condone, and celebrate pridefully evil. And he holds a cup of wrath. And one day he's going to make them drink it for And I immediately think to the upper room, I think of the graciousness of the upper room. Here, after Judas leaves, he gives to his disciples uh, a cup of fellowship, a cup of friendship, a cup of love. And then he makes clear there is another cup soon to come. And when that cup falls upon him, he is so terrified. Maybe terrified is too strong a word, but he's so fretful about what he is about to endure. In drinking down that cup, he says to his father, Father, if there's any other way, Please let this cup pass. And he, as he's sweating blood, do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be awakened in the great judgment day to come, where every knee shall bow and not know of the Savior who drank.
down the cup of wrath in your place. Because if you do not embrace him as Savior, he will say, fine, if you would not receive my drinking that cup for you, you drink it on your own. You drink the wrath of everlasting judgment. Few passages in Scripture are as sobering as this one. And then we come to the last woe in verse 19. Mocking those who, makes, who make idols. I mean, think of the foolishness of the ancient world. And the Bible talks about this foolishness. I'm, I'm just paraphrasing the word of God. They take the time to carve an idol and they, they say to that piece of wood, that's our God. And they worship it. Now in Ephesians 5.5, 5, we learn that whenever a person makes their highest priority, anything other than God, something that's made rather than the maker, and they set that made thing against their maker, that's an idol. And it's interesting also because we think of people who are struggling with idolatry, and we often say, oh, they don't know any better. Oh, they just don't know any better. But that's actually an unbiblical idea. The meaner truth of the matter is people know better, they just don't care. All around our country today, people will make sports and athletes an idol, movies and music an idol, sex and sexuality an idol, concerts and events an idol, money and business an idol, school and education an idol, national pride or pride of other varieties an idol, politicians and governments an idol, fitness and health an idol, family and friends an idol, their own wisdom and knowledge, they're being smarter than God an idol, ethnicity and social class an idol. And I could go on. And they'll set all these things uh, above God. And God just laughs. Laughs at the foolishness of it all. Aha! Brilliant idea. They will worship creaturely things above and against God in a way that's sinful while they know better. Let us stop prioritizing creaturely sins above and against God. And then we have the final verse, verse 20. I remember being a part of an OPC church with Stephanie and I when we lived in Reno and had this verse hanging behind the pastor. It was a great verse to hang behind the pastor. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And it was a great verse to see because I, like you, would sit in the pews and occasionally my mind would wander. I would drift off. Oh, the preacher's going long today. And you see that word, and you see that confirming word, and you go, no, I'm supposed to sit here. I'm supposed to listen to God speaking to me through his word. There's something precious here. More precious than any idol that would distract me. But then let me take that one step further. I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that talks about us, the saved. As temples of the Holy Spirit. We are temples, living temples. And so, in your woeful, puffed up pride, and my woeful, puffed up pride, we all need to see the wisdom it is of setting that aside, of being quiet before God. Letting the Spirit of God speak to us through the Word of God. 
so that we might more fully reflect the goodness and wisdom of the Lord. That we might fully comprehend that our God has every right to demand and to ask us and to seek that we would stop in these woeful practices, stop allowing the sins of Babylon to be in our heart, because He is the God who so loved us that He drank down that cup of wrath for us and for our sake and for our salvation. And so He's allowed to influence us in the voters' bodies. He's allowed to tell us things that might be hard for us to hold on to, as we still love family members and friends who have not yet embraced the one who drank down the cup of wrath for our sake. And it might be hard as we see God maybe judge the state of his church by allowing either bad or worse rulers to take power. And yet, if we're just quiet before him, he will speak to us through the Spirit. He will give us the strength we need. He will give us our daily bread. And so let us be found to be a people faithful to him. Let us be silent before the Lord. Let him speak instead of us as to the wisdom of how to live. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, in the heart of every woe is an aspect of our sin declared to us, shown to us. And yet you are the God who drank down that cup of wrath for our sins. So we thank you for that. And we pray that you more fully refine us. Give us the courage to set our house right, to set our hearts right. We thank you. With the gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.